0: I'm fired up for today's episode of The Transition because I had an opportunity to sit down with serial entrepreneur and bootstrap expert Rob Walling, author and host of the podcast Startups for the Rest of Us, a podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at launching software products. Rob has been bootstrapping startups for the last two decades and launched his podcast to show other founders how to successfully build a non venture backed startup. In 2010, he wrote the book, Start Small, Stay Small, the definitive playbook for those for going the VC route. Rob is an evangelist for permissionless entrepreneurship, creating content and launching platforms to give everyone a chance at the entrepreneurial dream. And on this episode of The Transition, he shares some insights into his philosophy and the lessons he's learned from his vast experience launching and working with bootstrap startups. Since launching his podcast and writing his book, He's gone on to expand his reach with a conference called MicroConf and created his own investment vehicle, Tiny Seed. Needless to say, Rob is a beast and brings a wealth of knowledge to the bunker. Before you hear from Rob and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition newsletter at the link in the show notes. If you're interested in contributing to the newsletter with a post of your own or a topic you'd like me to cover on the show, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn. Also, be sure to check out the official 2021 Bunker Labs Holiday Gift Guide, which features over 50 veteran and military spouse-owned businesses, many with promo codes for holiday savings. You can access the guide at the link in the show notes. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans, and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoy today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Uh, Rahab, welcome to the bunker. What's going on, man? Thanks for having me down here. I'm excited. Uh, First of all, to our listeners, I reached out to Rob on Twitter. You know, people ask me all the time, they're like, because I run a podcast agency, they asked me, oh, what kind of podcast do you listen to? Thinking I listen to all these famous people. And I'm not saying that you're not famous, Rob, but I listen to people that, how do I describe this, that I'm kind of drawn into? And as an entrepreneur, right, like I've kind of reached that point of like the messy middle. You know, it's like you launch the venture, then it's like, okay, what are we working towards? Are you trying to exit? Are you trying to, you know, go to uh, the stratosphere and do a billion dollar, you know, exit? But nobody's really talking about like, there's a lot of life to be lived during this time too. you know, what kind of venture do you want to run? What kind of people do you want to be around? And so that was one of the things that led me to the indie entrepreneur movement, which eventually led me to you. So I'm super happy to have you here to speak about it to our audience.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's great. Uh, the the bunker is a lot more, it's better lit than I thought it would be, you know, coming down here. I was thinking it was going to be just a little two by four fixture fluorescent lighting, but you get it. It's pretty swank down here, man. Oh, i got boxing gloves over here. Look at that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so one place I would love you to start is just introduce yourself to our, our listeners. Let me know what you got going on with. You know, you got a lot of moving parts. You got startups for the rest of us. You've got Tiny Seed, and then you also got comp.
1: Yeah. So, I was a software developer and I decided I didn't want to work for other people. And so I started building products, failed many, many times over several years. And ultimately after about a, well, it was about eight years from when I started, I was able to quit, quit the day job. And so I stopped calling myself a developer, even though I still wrote code at that time and started calling myself a founder or an entrepreneur that was back in 2008. And within a year or two of that, um, I I had already been blogging, I'm writing essays online since uh, 2005, so a few years before that. I realized there were other people who wanted to do this and there was no one talking about it. You know, everyone talks about the venture path and raising money. And the only way to start a tech company is to, to raise buckets of money and you gotta become a billion dollar company or you're not worth anything. And I realized that was not true, but no one was talking about it. And so as people gathered around these writings I was doing, I realized, well, it's 2010, should start a podcast about it. So that's when Startups for the Rest of Us started. And we're on episode five, we're about to ship episode 580 here in a few weeks, been doing it for 11 years. And that is really the hub of it. It's 30 minutes every week, talking about entrepreneur, permissionless entrepreneurship. It's like, you can start something without asking permission, right, from, a, from an investor. Even though I invest in startups these days, I encourage everyone, you can start without it. In fact, you should bootstrap until you have traction before you ask for, for money, you know, if you decide that you want to go that route. A year later, so that was 2010, a year later, we started an event, an in-person event called MicroConf, and that's now become the largest community online for Bootstrap founders, Bootstrap SaaS founders specifically, which is a software as a service. And then TinyC didn't come along till about three years ago, uh, you know, after doing what we were doing with MicroConf and the podcast for almost a decade, we realized there was a gap in the market. And some of our people, about 10 to 15% of kind of the MicroConf community, startups, the rest of this community, did want to raise small amounts of funding, but they didn't want to go on the venture track. And there was really no, there were no good ways to do that or very few. And so Tiny Seed is a fund and an accelerator where we invest in like mostly bootstrap software. It's still capital efficient. We, we write small checks, 120 grand, 180 grand. And a lot of our companies will never raise another round,
0: right? They don't have
1: to step on that venture treadmill.
0: So you're not going for that you know a hundred x return. you're going more for that twenty yeah know. we'd
1: we'd love a hundred x return, but we don't need it. Like a, you know when a venture capitalist raises a billion dollar fund, they have to have these huge wins other if if you sell for twenty million bucks, you're an abject failure right to them because that that doesn't even make back two percent of their fund. But for us, yes, if you can grow even like even a SaAS app that's growing decently well, it gets to two million in annual current revenue. Like you can sell that thing these days for $10, $15 million. Like that will change your life as a founder. And it also can provide adequate returns for, for the model that we've we've designed.
0: So we're actually gonna talk about this a little bit later, but given that your experience, you know, doing what you've been doing for the last 11 years, running starts for the rest of us, you've seen podcasts grow and change. You've seen the entrepreneurial ecosystem change. What excites you the most now about Indie Founders?
1: What excites me the most is that there are multiple active, um, strong, positive communities for them. Because what I, Indie Hackers is one. Right? I think that's maybe where you came through. And then just Indie in, Entrepreneurs. Whatever. Indie, I don't know. Yep. The,
0: I'm I'm new to this space, right? Yep. But in in the veteran community, a lot of people don't know about these backdoor Slack channels and that's all right. these different communities. And so, you know, for me, I was already doing a lot of stuff, and I just gravitated towards that because. I am a bootstrap founder. I'm yep. a tech-enabled business. I run a podcast production agency. I run a nonprofit. So that's how I was uh, able to come across it. Uh, yeah. But
1: Yeah, I'm excited because when I first started this, like let's say I started writing in 2005 and then started the podcast in 2010, I, was, I remember thinking, I want to do this on my own and I'll figure it out. No one else is doing it. No one else is talking about it. So I have to be the pioneer that was a very hard road and it took me a long time and i made a lot of big missteps so what i'm excited about today is you you don't have to do that because you can go to indiehackers.com and there's a community of however many tens of thousands of of indie founders you can go to microconfconnect.com that's our our private slack channel but it's you if you're a founder and you apply there's 2500 founders in there and you can get advice and then there's tiny seed and there's there's other communities as well but to me that shows that this movement has traction because there was not a movement in 2005 and it was just a gleam in our eyes, you know, in 2010 and now it's full blown tens of thousands of people doing it. And literally I get not a month goes by that. I do not get an email that says you like bootstrapping and it, bootstrapping has changed my life is usually the summary. And oftentimes it's, I learned about it as a path
0: from start small, stay small from your book or from the podcast or whatever. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to take off our armor. And that's one of the components of coming in the bunker is, you know, it's easy to see people winning on social media. Oh, I've got it all figured out. My business is kicking butt. But one of the things we do is we ask our guests to take off their armor and share something they're struggling with either personally or professionally, you know, as a bootstrap founder, small business owner, et cetera. So we'd love to hear what, you know, you guys are struggling with uh, on the back end. I think
1: the biggest thing that I'm struggling with these days is, I'm trying to hire some people to help with certain tasks, and we're not a big team. There's only four of us, plus some contractors that are doing Tiny Seed, which is, we have almost $40 million under management. We've invested in 59 companies, MicroConf, which is tens of thousands of founders, and and we're going to do 12 in-person events next year, plus our online stuff, our YouTube channel. And then startups to the rest of us, which ships every week like clockwork. They're are, there are literally four full-time people plus just a handful. It's, it's high leverage. It's bootstrapping. You're in the spot. I bet you have a lot fewer people on your team than outsiders think when you say, I run this company that edits X amount of podcasts, right? The biggest struggle I have is there's still all these tasks that are floating around across these businesses, and I've been trying for months to... I have, I have them in a bulleted list and I'm like, okay, this is, this is this title. So I'm going to go try to hire that. Well, I failed at that. And, and I, I feel like I should know what I'm doing by now. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's the thing that maybe the higher level I'm struggling with is I do know more than what I did a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So I'm not saying like nobody knows anything. I'm not saying you don't learn, I'm not saying you don't get better. But sometimes when I run a job ad and I spend months and then we get to the end and it's like, nope, didn't find anybody, I think to myself, shouldn't I be better at this by now? So I think there's a mental, you know, I I like to say more than half of being a successful entrepreneur is managing your own psychology. And so I don't let it destroy me, I manage my psychology, but um,
0: that's hopefully a good lesson for people to take away. Yeah. You know, there's this whole component, especially when you're creating new business models that haven't existed, building the operating system of like how these works. And I'm with you. I've been doing I've tried OKR. I've tried traction, you know, and finally I just had to go to my admin. I'm like, we're making it, you know, and just job to be done. Make this whole thing work because we got a for profit. We got a nonprofit. There's a lot of moving parts, you know, but I just need to figure out how to make this work. And I don't I don't have the answer yet. And it sounds like you don't either yet.
1: Yeah. I'm getting there. <laughs> I have the answer to some of the questions. There were a lot of questions that I used to wonder about that I have answers to now, but there are still those hiring is always a challenge, like finding great people, you know, and getting them in the right, getting them in the right
0: role to where they're in their zone of genius. Most of the time is is hard. And then also understanding what it means to come into a, like a company of yours of this is not some giant corporation, you know, you might have to get out the Google docs and go make this process from scratch and yep. owning that and understanding that. Yep, yep. So, one of the things I would love to just kind of jump into is start small, stay small. You wrote this book, what two thousand twelve? So I wrote it in two thousand nine and published it in twenty ten. So I came across you, and then I uh, I'm part of Mega Maker with Justin Jackson, right? So I go on the Amazon page, I find the book. I was like, Hey, is this still relevant today? They're like, Absolutely. It's like a Bible. So I listened to it, and immediately I started listen. Identify market opportunities where people are already spending money. Carve out your little niche. If you don't have a tech-enabled business, uh, a SaaS business, yes. Just look for opportunities and just kind of keep plowing around. And now, since then, I've seen other books come out. I just got uh, uh, The Minimalist Entrepreneur. Uh, I've read Justin Jackson's book, too. But it sounds like you kind of paved the way in terms of putting these ideas and these concepts out there early you, Jason Friedman, some of these other guys. So I would love for you to talk about the general concept of the book and then also how you would update it to, for today's landscape.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I, I agree with you. When I wrote it, I didn't know of another book talking about it in the way I was doing it. I truly pulled from my firsthand experience mixed with there was this internet marketer, info marketer space right who was doing the ebooks some of which were legit and some of which were kind of scammy and i didn't i didn't do their same tactics but i did learn from them and a lot of stuff they talked about was start with a pain point blah 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 but no one was talking about that in software or in startups except for like you said maybe Jason Fried L- literally no one it wasn't like oh there were a few pa-. it's like i'm going to write this book that was a series of essays and and publish a thing really the premise was to kind of try to normalize not raising venture capital, right? And to start a startup with the idea of maybe this startup only becomes a $300,000 a year business or a $3 million a year business only, in quotes. Because those numbers can change your life. When I wrote that book... A couple of years, 10 years prior, I got my first job out of college, I was making 17 bucks an hour. I was an electrician. And so to me, to even have products that could make 120 grand a year that I could live off of and not work with someone else, that was life changing for me, right? So in 2010, that's pretty much what I had. I had a collection of, I had some eBooks and some software. Um, What else did I have? You know, a couple, it was a bunch of things mixed and matched. I had one SaaS app. and. I was making, that was what I was making, 120, 150 grand a year. And I was like, you know, this is a pretty good life. And so the book was trying to normalize, hey, you don't need to swing for the fences. If you can build a, a, a small business that does 10 grand a month and doesn't require a ton of your time, that's actually easier than building a venture back company, right? The venture back company is much more likely to fail. And so I spend a lot of time talking about, you know, go into these niches, right? Go into a niche and there's less competition um, and look for desire, look for search volume in essence i talk about a lot in the book right of people already because if you're trying to go out i mean the model i was seeing at the time i was like i'm going to start this brand new thing like twitter that no one needs but boy it's popular and everyone talks about it so i want to start the next twitter or facebook or goo you know google people were needing because it was a search engine but twitter facebook whatever else that was the model I thought, and I launched several of those and failed. And what really got traction were these small things that were invoicing software for this small group of people. You know, it was a job board, which you know people need job boards. It was, you know, for power electricians who work on power lines. And there was a wedding website builder. These are things I owned at the time. Solved these, they were boring, solved these really specific pain points, and there was search volume <laughs> or ad ad you know inventory that I could buy. So that's that's the gist of the book. I think the second part of your question is, what would I change? And I get asked that a lot. I've wanted to update the book for a decade, um, and just you know haven't had the time to do it. Bottom line is, I reread the book. I skimmed through it about six months ago, a year ago. Eighty-five percent of it, st- to me, is still one hundred percent valid. All the mindset stuff, the approaches, the thinking. What I would update are some of, there were some really specific like screenshots of apps and how they worked and how to find keyword volume. Like all the, a bunch of those tools don't even even exist anymore. You know, that's a big thing. I still think the approach works. I would probably throw in even a little more. I don't remember how much I talked about acquiring these little businesses, but like that was something I did. I would probably put some emphasis on that. But I was talking about virtual assistants. You know, Uh, the only person I'd ever saw talk about that before was Tim Tim Ferriss in 4-Hour Workweek a couple hours earlier. So
0: it, it was a fun one. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners actually might not be familiar with uh, start small, stay small. So I want to touch on a couple of the key points. Number one, and I love how you emphasize this starting businesses that actually sell a product or service to someone, not trick them. We're not selling their data. It's like they're purchasing this with the expectation that uh, we're going to deliver some kind of value to them. That's exactly right. And that again was
1: I saw people talking about these social media or social news or social whatever in 2000 to 2010. And I thought, since everyone was talking about it, that that was the way to go. But it turns out when you're a single solo entrepreneur doing nights and weekends with no funding, that's a terrible way to go. And actually finding a usually a business, even if it's a small business, who has a pain point or a problem, and you can build a real solution to that and sell it to real customers who pay you real money That's the best way to do it. Rather than, uh, like you said, I'm going to sell data. I'm going to use my ad revenue that only works at scale. You know, you don't make any money with ads until you're a massive media company, right? Um, Facebook didn't have ads for the first several years because there was no money in it. So finding a pain point and finding a business, whether it's small or large, you can sell to consumers too. Usually consumers are so price sensitive that that's actually something I discourage as well. But, you know, small business and up, They have a pain. You solve it, whether you solve it with software, whether you solve it with productized service, you know, I mean, you're doing editing, you're solving a
0: problem for for people who want to put a a product out. And even before you decide to build a product or service, one of the first things you got to do is identify opportunities where there's an actual market need, right? So, uh, you know, bigger companies can try to force the demand on the market, but for a independent entrepreneur that's bootstrap you don't got time to do that so talk to us about the market first mentality that you were talking about in the book
1: yeah yeah, market first mentality is is a good one. I forgot that was even in there, but it was basically, I mean I wrote the book originally, it was called start it's called Start Small Stay Small, a developer's guide to launching a startup. It actually you don't need to be a developer to read it. You could start you could start any type, You could start a consulting business, just kind of substitute this you still find a market need and still solve that problem. You're just going to do it with human automation, right? With people. Um so the market first mentality is exactly what you're saying. It's how do you define how do you find real demand for this product or service. And there's a bunch of ways to do this. You can go to Google keyword tool and look at search volume, or you can go to hrefs. There's a bunch of tools to find Google volume. That's just one indicator that there's search volume. You can go to tools like Jungle Scout and they'll tell you Amazon search volume. You can go to tools that will tell you the search volume in the iOS app store, or try to find out WordPress uh, uh, search volume. You can also be in Slack groups, Facebook groups, and other communities. And you can see a group of people talking about a pain point, about the same thing. Boy, we use XYZ software, doesn't it suck? I wish there was a better alternative. Or a bunch of people talking in a legal forum. Oh, I we really, uh, well, I wanna put a podcast out. Does anyone have any resources on it? No, there's really no good legal podcasting resource. Well, huh, is there a gap here that I can fill in, right? So there's ways to do it super, with data which is like search volume and search terms and this and that and then there's the the more interpersonal way that maybe doesn't scale maybe it's like well i can find ten thousand people but can i find five in this group who would need it in which case you might need to charge a little more for it hopefully it's a consulting service at that point uh because selling five copies of software wouldn't be a big deal but that's the idea right is to look for the market need first
0: some of this stuff seems like common sense right and part of me is like now being on the other side of the veil. Right. I see people. And I'm like, listen, man, it's not that complicated. Find something that somebody wants and go sell it to them. You know, why are we swimming upstream? You know, and uh, I, I just don't I don't get it. And like, I don't know if part of it is like reading books like yours, being part of Indie Hacker. I'm sorry if I keep throwing these terms around. No, it's good. Indie Hacker, Indie Entrepreneur, Micropreneur Movement. Right. Because I'm plugged in, I see the business landscape in a different light. But to the outside looking in, I constantly see people trying to swim upstream when I know they don't have the funds to do so.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's good that these books now exist and these communities now exist is because once you're in it, you make a lot fewer mistakes. Because as you said, maybe two years ago, you wouldn't have thought of this. And today you do. But it's because you've been educated. I edu- I was educated, too, by the people around me and a bunch of hard knocks as I made. I mean, I, I don't even want to tell. I'm embarrassed to tell you about like the first three website software things that I built that were basically copies of these. Ve- I was trying to bootstrap uh, a venture backed business. You know what I mean? And it, it just doesn't work. And so that uh, that's how I learned it.
0: And it's funny now too, you talk about early on, you were talking about communities and how amazing it is to be able to have access to these Slack groups and all this other stuff. Now you see big venture-backed companies really doing this hard press on community building, bringing community consultants, because when you have customers, ideal customers in one place, you're constantly learning what they need and it allows you to make a better product. So again, you all kind of set the pace early on and it seems like these other companies or big VC or whatever is starting to finally kind of catch up. Yeah.
1: And we did it by accident, right? I literally started writing essays in 2005. And I thought, I want to share this information. I want to share it for myself, but I want to see if anyone else out there cares. And after the first year, I had 66 subscribers to my blog. I was publishing once or twice a week thousands and thousands of words, hundreds of hours of time, no joke. And then it, but then it built. You know, it built over time until 2010. I had 25,000 subscribers. So I could publish something and I would assume, you know, that, you know, 10,000 people would read it or whatever. Um, But I didn't set out to do that. But I did quickly realize there was a lot of value there. People started asking questions. People started posting comments on the blog and that became the book, right? I started answering those questions, keeping the answers, and then eventually being like, huh, I think other people will do this. Then I realized I was honestly a little bit lonely may not be the exact right word, but I wanted community I wanted other people on this same journey and that was where the podcast kind of started. I thought we could continue the audience so I had the blog and the podcast and then in 2011 with microconf it said let's get us all together in a room and we were gonna we were gonna try to sell 225 tickets we sold 70. it was it was a lot harder than it seemed but we but we wound up having about 100 people show up and that was the first time that I had met folks in person who were trying to bootstrap Startups—it's crazy to say today, right? Because today you can go to an Indie Hackers meetup, you can go to any of our I mean, more than a dozen events. But back then, we we did stumble into it. And to your point, it's yeah, other people are doing that these days, you know, especially uh, the venture folks. And that I don't know. For me, it, when someone someone asked me the other day, like, "Oh, Tiny Seed, did you start this fund because you have all this deal flow, right, with Microconf and your podcast?" And I was like, "No, I." I've been doing that basically for free for more than a a decade. I mean, really 15 years if you include the blogging. I'm going to do that forever. That's that's who I am. I did that for free for literally thousands of hours. Tiny Seed is just one more offering. It's just one more resource, right? Because microconf is like, hey, you can get together in person. You can get together online and connect. We have this YouTube channel with a bunch of videos to educate you. They're all free. We give away all this free stuff. And then we have in-person events where you pay, but they're not like wildly profitable. It's not like a huge profit center. Tiny C is just one more thing. It's like, for those of you who do want to raise funding, you want to bootstrap into raising funding. It's just another option. So you don't have to deal with, you know, the traditional venture
0: route. Given that you've, one, produced so much content, met all these different bootstrapped entrepreneurs, right? What are the businesses that are good for bootstrapping and mm-hmm. the ones that are not? And I will tell you, I already know the answer to this question. Like marketplaces, I listen to your podcast and you were talking about how why marketplace is a bad idea. Anytime I come across somebody that's trying to bootstrap a marketplace, I'm like, it's a bad business model. It's a lot challenging. Listen to this episode. Here's why.
1: Good. That's, if there is one thing, that was the first thing I was going to mention. Everybody seems to want to do a two-sided marketplace. And you know why? Because in in 2005, I was like, Facebook, Twitter, Dig, social networks, right? What are they seeing today? Instacart, Uber, uh, DoorDash. What are those? Those are all two-sided marketplaces, right? There's the consumer, me, with my Instacart at home, who I'm like putting stuff in my cart. And then the other side is drivers, right? Who then go pick the stuff up. So that's what aspiring new entrepreneurs see today as a successful thing. Those things are so, so difficult to get off the ground, very capital intensive and most of them fail. And I will just say flat out, you you really can't bootstrap those. It's just too time intensive. Even online there's folks trying to just start on, uh, like a two-sided marketplace. Let's say a job board. If I were to go today and start a job board for developers who want to work at startups, that's a two-sided marketplace. Cause I now have to attract developers who are looking for jobs and I have to attract employers. Now, I might have the audience to do that, but if you don't have my audience, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. It will, it, Even though it's all online, it won't be expensive. You, It's chicken and egg, and it is really, really hard to get two sides. So I'm not saying never do a two-sided marketplace. I'm saying only do it if you have buckets of money or a lot of entrepreneurial experience already, or you have one side of the audience all dialed in. You already have a website with 10,000, 20,000 developers who hang out on it. Uh, add a job board on. That's reasonable. As a first-time entrepreneur, stay away from marketplaces. That's what I would say. The other thing I would say is start small. You don't have to stay small. But um, a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, we look at successful businesses and we think we need to start a business like that. The problem is, is a lot of those entrepreneurs have been doing it for 15 years you can't play in the major leagues if you never played T-ball, you never played high school ball, you never played, you know, college, and then single A, double A, triple A, like you don't just jump to that. It took me from 2005 to, well, I really started launching some crappy stuff in 2000, but you know, seven or eight years to get to where, okay, I have full-time income. And then it took me another three years to get to where it's like, oh, I'm comfortable, like I'm making more money than I need, this is great. And then it took me another three years to get where I had a, a big exit, right? So if you look all told, it was like 11, 12, 13 years of doing it, right? And so if someone were to go and try to start Drip, which is my last software that became, it was software as a service, became really big and had a, a great exit for me, you would be foolish to do it without, what did I have at the time? I had another app that was throwing off a bunch of money, so I kind of had funding. I had a ton of experience. I had confidence. I had skill set. I could myself write content, do SEO, do pay per click. I had already done that successfully. So don't start in a really competitive space if you don't work your way up. And that's I actually call that the stair-step approach to bootstrapping, which is starting small with
0: with a small idea and you work your way up. So this is one of the things I also appreciate about the indie movement is you all throw a lot of stuff at the wall. And people looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, Mike, you're always doing this different stuff. But it's like you said, you're getting that constant feedback loop of what's working, what's not working. You're moving on. How many ventures do you think you've launched realistically over the years? A lot. Like a real lot.
1: And in fact, not only launched, but I acquired about 10 in the uh, 2000, was the last one I did was 2011, first one was probably 2006. So in the course of about five years, I acquired 10 different things and some of them were eBooks. There were eBooks in these, talk about start small, stay small. I owned an eBook that I acquired from an expert on bonsai trees. It was called Beginner Bonsai. And this person had written this great eBook, had no idea how to market it, was getting a trickle of SEO traffic. I knew SEO. I started pouring in bonsai, you know, SEO traffic and turned this thing from, a, I don't know, was doing $100 a month He sold it to me for 500 or something i turned that into like a thousand dollar a month revenue stream i wasn't going to retire on it but it was completely automated so i had little things like that in addition to the software i was doing acquiring plus launching has to be north of 2025 and you know maybe it's maybe it's 30 and several of them failed several of them i shut down and some of them became you know a lot of them became five figure annual businesses right so doing 10 to, 10 to 90 grand a year. And then some of them came, a few of them became six figures and several became seven figure businesses. But to your point, you know what I didn't do though? Here, I will say some people have shiny object syndrome and they launch and they kind of half ass something and then they do, they launch another thing and they, and they move one thing to the next constantly. If you're not learning, that's not good. It's also not, I never tried to focus and grow two things at once. I would buy something or build it. And then I would realize this is a pretty good place to be autopiloted for a while. I'm going to just put it on. I'll come back to it because it's not going to be autopilot forever. And then I would move on to the next thing. And by, you know, then I I had plates that were spinning and then I would come back to them, Trying to focus and grow multiple things at once is actually really, really hard.
0: Yeah, I uh, but the reason I appreciate you sharing this is for a lot of us in the veteran and military spouse ecosystem, we're coming through learning how to pitch and thinking that this is the one. You know, this is our life savings. If we don't go now, whatever. So most of them don't know, most of our listeners, they don't even know about how to transition from that full-time gig into creating that part-time income, let alone understanding that the reality of it is people are launching multiple ventures. You know, we call it the 300 missing pages, right? When they tell you their success story, there's these 300 pages that are missing of all these seven ventures that they buried. So I appreciate you being honest about it because I think it gives people permission to get out there and try yeah I, w- I would agree with
1: that i would say i like the something about the the indie founder movement that is so i think positive is the, the realistic view of things and the idea that doing things on the side nights and weekends is what most of us should do this idea that i'm going to raise funding so that i don't have to work the day job yeah that, that i would have loved to do that i never did that i worked nights and weekends for years and years and years and it's quicker these days. There's more information, things move faster. There's more technology. Like you can, you don't have to do what I did, uh, because of the communities and all that. But the idea of, I, I, I don't want to do a side hustle, right. Or I just want to focus on this one thing is I don't, it's not super realistic.
0: One of the things I think your book does. And I think the audience will appreciate is that there's ways to de-risk the entrepreneurial experience. Like you said, you start something, you get up to a certain monthly revenue, right? You're not worried about raising yet. You're talking about getting active customers. And then you get to a certain price point and you say, okay, what do I need to live in order to work on this full time? And then you hit that point and now you're actually building and moving. So while I have you, let's walk us through a process, right? Talk us through, you know, realistically, what does it look like to work a full-time job then transition to working on your startup full-time?
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So what's interesting is, there. I mean, I can give you like a perfect example of someone who stair-stepped up from working a day job in um, medical device sales. I believe he loved podcasting. He um, started a well, a, a company called Castos that is now a podcast hosting company. And but but he didn't just, and he's not a software developer, and it's a SaaS company, right? The way he started it was working the day job, he said, I'm gonna find some editors and I'm gonna start a productized podcast editing service. This may sound familiar to you. And he did it on the side nights and weekends for years actually, still worked the day job. And he built that to tens of thousands in monthly revenue. And then I think he was still working the day job and someone came along and said, oh, you're doing podcasting stuff, I have a WordPress plugin that does podcast hosting, would you like to acquire it from me? So he took some of that money, he acquired it from them, and he realized it had an install base, it had WordPress search traffic, right, to that search engine. He's like, I could probably build a podcast hosting SaaS on this. So he had money from his side hustle that he, you know, because he had the day job paying the bills. So he hires a software developer, which is actually quite expensive, but he hired a good one, paid him the money, and started building a SaaS on top of this WordPress plugin. And later it was called Seriously Simple Podcasting. Now it's called Castos C-A-S-T-O-S.com. And um it's it's a you know it's, it's multiple seven-figure uh, podcast hosting company.
0: Is this the guy, the podcast coach?
1: No, that's a different guy. That was a different one. But I listened yeah, to one of he, those
0: episodes on it. Yes, he
1: has great he has good software too, and he also, the podcast coach started, I believe it was blogging nights and weekends about podcasting, built up an audience and eventually quit his job. And then he has online podcast editing software, I believe is what he has. So it's similar, these indie founders, the bootstrapped entrepreneurs, this is the probably the most common path that I see is you you build that skill of, of shipping and you build up the revenue and you build up the experience and you build up the confidence, uh, oftentimes, Nights and weekends. Look, some some folks don't have to do that. Some folks do have a spouse that can support them. Um, some folks save up enough money they can take six months off. That would stress me out a lot because it, having a clock on getting to certain revenue is pretty hard, right? Some people do raise funding. That's not not many. There are other ways to do it, but like the nights and weekends track is what most of us, I would say, have have traveled. Yeah,
0: and you know, and this is another thing, and I would love your advice on this. For those of us that aren't technical founders, right? You know, we're just got a brick and mortar business or we got a tech enabled business. How do you, especially with the pandemic and everything, a lot of people had to pivot. A lot of people had to hustle, you know, and I was, I'm in that crowd. I launched my podcast agency, but how do we approach building our businesses and looking for tech opportunities in the future, even if we don't have them now?
1: Yeah, I, I, that's a really good question, and so my advice: I found a lot of n- first-time non-developer or non-technical founders wanting to launch like a SaaS product. That's re- you have a lot stacked against you if you were doing that. I would my advice to that person would be go start some non-like software companies. There's so so much opportunity in freelancing, in productized services, in info products like writing ebooks. Um, creating courses and selling them on Udemy, you know, video courses on something that you know you sell them on Udemy or Teachable or any of these platforms. So a lot of ways without software to make money, um, and and then once you're in it, like you are, you probably start seeing ways to automate things. You probably are starting to use things. No code is the term these days, right? Use Zapier, use Notion, use Bubble, Airtable, right? These are all no code tools, and what you'll find is you'll probably make your business better internally by using them. And you may stumble into, huh, I wonder if, I wonder if, you know, this Google sheet we have duct taped to this Zapier link that goes into that one Airtable thing, should that maybe be custom software? You know, and it's it's that kind of thing. It's it's fortuitously, it, I say, doing things in public creates opportunity, right? There's this phrase I say over and over. What I mean is getting in the ball game and getting out of the stands and actually starting to do work, you will start finding opportunities um, to take business to the next level. You don't have to start, you can build amazing seven figure businesses. You can change your life without ever building a software company. So I'm not a software evangelist. I'm an entrepreneurship and bootstrap evangelist. You know what I mean? And I talk mostly about software because that's what I know and that's, that's my world and that's what I fund and that's what our community is. But there are, there are, there are a lot of opportunities
0: in a, a lot of other spaces as well. A lot of opportunities with content too. And yep. you've published what over 500 plus episodes of startups for the rest of us at this point, your yep. micro comp on air. I love those. The Jason Fried cool. episode, Asia uh, Matos, Asia yeah, yep. Get your first hundred. Love that. How do you see content these days and particularly podcasting selfishly? Because I saw the writing between the walls, right? Like there's not a lot of people making money off their podcasts. But yep. there's a lot of other opportunities that podcasts allow us to do in terms of establishing our expertise, selling products or services outside of the audio. But I would love to hear your, your take on the the podcast and the content ecosystem. You know, we're in this creator's economy, but you've been here 11 years. So yeah. I'm sure you have a different take.
1: Yeah, I see. I do see it both ways. So obviously, I love podcasting. I love listening to podcasts. I love creating them we have really never made money on the podcast. We lose money on it, right? Because we pay a, uh, an editor and you know a social media person. We've had a few sponsors here and there, but I mean, that's not the goal. The goal of the podcast was never that. It was always, what was the goal? The goal was to get, get us together. And then later it became, well, MicroConf really needs the podcast to survive, right? In order to keep driving people to the community. That's not the case anymore. But it kind of did become uh, uh, like a, marketing feels strong cuz it was never we never designed it to market for microconf but that is it it's the funnel right it's people discovering us and realizing this is an option and then coming in what i see obviously we you and i see people who who do make money from their podcast right it's like the joe rogan or the tim ferriss or whoever those people they have big audiences it's is it possible for you or someone in your audience to build that maybe it's really 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 unlikely. You know, it's the one in, it's like going moving to LA to become an actor. Some people will become famous and most people will go, go home sad and disappointed. I think if you're trying to start a podcast to truly like make a living off of it, I hope you have some really unique, you know, u- unique skill set and such. I think um I do see you talked earlier about how you know we got to community early and now venture capitalists and others are kind of moving in that direction. It does feel a little bit like that to me these days with podcasting and email newsletters and maybe YouTube starting to be that way where people do see it as a channel, a marketing channel, and they're almost retrofitting like, well, we're a venture capitalist or we're you know, XYZ business and we need customers. And so we're now gonna launch a podcast to find those customers. I think that can work. I think there are a lot, it has to be good. And it can't seem like a house organ the term "house organ" is where we talk about our own stuff, we promote our own stuff, we interview people who use our stuff. like it has to be something beyond that, right? Like I would call this podcast not a house organ because I didn't come on here to tell you how to talk to the audience about how good your editing service is, right? We're not here to plug your business. you've brought it up in very tasteful ways and you've brought it up of like to couch the conversation um, but there are a lot of people not doing that very well. so do I think podcasts and newsletters um I'm more excited, I'll just put it this way. I'm more excited about the creators and indie creators that are doing podcasts and and the um what's the email newsletter service where you pay? I forget what it's Substack. called. Yeah, like I'm excited about those things because those are actually people who are doing it and monetizing it directly, right? Versus when I see a new email newsletter come out of a big company, I roll my eyes and think, well, here's a content team cranking things out because they think it's an opportunity. So all that said,
0: I see it both ways. For me, I don't have an MBA, right? And I, I don't was kind of self conscious leaving the military and I'm going into entrepreneurship and stuff. But I'll be honest, because of your platforms, Justin Jackson, all these different people I listen to, right? You guys have empowered me to be a confident entrepreneur. You know, because of 500 plus episodes, hell, I've listened to everything Asia's put out about getting your first 100 customers. Most people do not know how to get their first hundred customers. They have no idea about how to flip the funnel, right? They're out there trying to get awareness, trying to do all this other stuff. I say business is a contact sport. I'm trading it. If you want to get revenue, you need to get out there and look people in the eye and engage real customers and drive revenue. So to me, that's the biggest benefit. And the other thing I see now is, you know, to what end are people trying to grow their podcast? To what end are they trying to go their subscriber list, right? Right. Like, yeah, you could go on, I don't know, a hundred different podcasts to try to increase, you know, startups for the rest of us. But for me, I look at it and I'm like, the knowledge and insights you've probably gained from creating that much content, inviting different guests on, right? Like, how has that helped you?
1: Yeah, it absolutely has. I mean, every time that I sit down to record, this is why I've done this for 11 years. It's certainly not, it's like, MicroConf and Tiny Seed would be fine without the podcast now, right? They're, they're their own entities. They have their own channels and their own communities and their own groups. But the podcast is as much for me and always has been. Me and my, I had a co-host for the first 400 something episodes. It was for us originally, as much as it was for the audience. And really, I, we've literally shipped every week for almost 11 years. And there's a reason that I've done that. It's because I need it because I need it. It's like a thinking space for me. I'll record solo episodes where I'm pontificating about thoughts to see what people think about them. And there is, and then there's the, like you said, the interviews where I'm able to pick really smart people's brains on uh, topics that I otherwise wouldn't get to, to learn about.
0: You're an autodidact. And I know this because you've got like 900 uh, audio books, right? Or audible That's books. That's right. I do. It's bears. embarrassing really not, I, I think I think that's great where does that come from
1: you know I don't know I do think there's some genetic component to needing I need intellectual stimulation it's a blessing and a curse the blessing is that I, I read a lot and I've consumed a lot of things and I synthesize them and then I you I use them to inform my businesses and my business decisions, and now inform the companies I invest in, right? I'm invested between Tiny Seed and and privately, I'm invested in almost 80 companies. So I'm advising them. And so I I need input, if I don't have that input, I don't have the output, right? To, To give to the companies and to myself from the, uh, as long as I can remember, I could read, and I started reading, you know, when, whatever, when I was three, and then I just started reading books and books, and I just consumed it, and then I started reading non-fiction uh, books. And I used to read the Guinness Book of World's Record every year, which no one, <laughs> don't do that, but I used to, because I was like, I need to know how big the tallest man is now, or whatever, and I see it in one of my sons and not the other. So there's some, that's where I think maybe it's a little genetic, you know? Um, I just think, we're we live in the, literally one of the best periods in history ever to to be to do what you want to do because whether you want to be an entrepreneur, whether you want to go to school and become whatever, there's so much information out there available that wasn't available to us. And most of this is due to the the internet. Um, but if if I were alive in the 50s, if I was a you know growing up then, just the limited number of inputs that I would have had, I wouldn't have had any of this entrepreneurial information. I'd have been reading, you know, paperback books I could get from my library. And these days, we have this massive advantage over everyone else, like
0: all of our ancestors, you know?
1: And I think I just think we shouldn't, we shouldn't squander that.
0: As you look towards the future and everything you got going on, Tiny C, Startups for the rest of us, what's your BHAG? What's that big, hairy, audacious goal that you're chasing?
1: That's a really good question. Um, basically the mission of all three of those things is the same. And the mission is to to dramatically increase the number of, um, of sustainable indie SaaS companies and independent SaaS companies to, who are not beholden to venture capitalists and are not beholden to investors. We might invest in them, but they're not beholden to us. So my BHAG is to make that come true. We are, we're as I said, we're, tiny seeds invested in about 60 companies. I'm invested privately in, in 20. Um, that number should be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, over the next even five years, we should be several hundred in, and not only investing, but supporting and helping them move forward. And MicroConf as well, even if MicroConf, is harder because I don't have the data on how many we impact, I just know it's a lot, right? Because I'm not getting monthly reports like I am with, with my investments. Uh, and startup for the Rest of Us is, e- I have even less info because people don't talk back, you know, I just get some comments and feedbacks. but. The big hairy goal is what, what I've been doing for a decade, which is I want, I want to multiply. I want a 2X or 5X, the number of people who are aware of this path and who are able to get there successfully, right? I don't need you to, you don't,
0: you don't need to build a $10 million company.
1: Let's just get you to quit your day job for now.
0: So to our listeners, we got veterans and military spouses tuning in from all over the country, all over the world. How can we support you on that mission? And where can people find you at? Well, I tell you, if if folks
1: are interested in this topic, and even again, my podcast is about software entrepreneurship, but I think to your point, you can listen to it and get value if you never, even if you never build a software company, because it applies to everyone. So if you like podcasts, check out Startups for the Rest of Us, startupsforrestofus.com. Um, and if you're, you know, an indie founder, head to microconfconnect.com, and that's our uh, Slack channel with about 2,500 founders and aspiring founders who are helping one another out. Folks can follow me on probably Twitter's the best way. It's I'm at Rob Walling, just my full name.
0: I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do too. I'm going to run, first of all, I appreciate you, not only for the stars, for the rest of us, and to your point, you ran the episode about um, what was the company, MailChimp, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yep. how those guys started off, like most of us, doing websites, hustlers, cancel- yep. Right. And then yep. they were able to find a product and build it out. But in addition to that, I really enjoy the microcomps on air mm-hmm. because it's a lot more tactical stuff that like really isn't. Imp- it's like a business school class, i am be honest. So I'm going to include a link to the Jason Fried one uh, in our show notes. And I'm also going to include the Asia Arangos about how to get your first uh, hundred customers. That's and then answer. also, I would love to be able to write a blog post of some sort for the Bunker Labs community about the indie entrepreneur Movement and the opportunities that are available out there, including um, uh, you know you know your organizations and your platforms. And so, I think you guys are doing great. You've introduced a lot of new concepts to me. Building in public, had no idea what that was, but I'm starting to learn. So, I've been on the inside for about six months, reading, learning, but I'm still in the fight. Built two six figure businesses at this point. And so uh, you guys are a big credit to that, which is why I wanted to get you on the platform to uh, share these insights with our audience. And I really appreciate you uh, coming on today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure.
0: So for all our listeners out there, if you haven't done so, do me a favor and go ahead and subscribe to the Transition podcast and newsletter on Substack at the link below. I release a newsletter every Tuesday and a podcast every Thursday. So be sure to leave a comment about each episode if you like. And If you have any questions about your own venture, be sure to post that as well. I'm always looking for content and I would love to learn what you all are struggling with in your own ventures so I can create some content for it on this platform. If you haven't got plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem yet, make sure you visit www.bunkerlabs.org and select the city nearest to you sign up for that local newsletter, and attend one of our networking events. It's that simple. From there, get connected at Bunker Online, where you can learn about our many different programs to support your entrepreneurial journey. We have programs that will take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position you to grow alongside other founders and CEOs. Register today by clicking connect at bunkerlabs.org. Marlon, thanks again for being with us. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.